0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We are in, what, chapter 5? I know I left off last week with verse 8, but what I'm going to do this evening is go back and start our study with verse 6. We're going to take verse 6 all the way through chapter 5. So as to really appreciate the context huh, of what Paul is after, but before we go there, I wanted to first ask you a question. You know, what is the genius of Christianity? What is the genius of Catholicism? You know, I was on my way here this evening and I couldn't get that question out of my head. And the reason why is because I think we have the tendency to downgrade how we think about the word genius. And by that I mean simply define it as wit or natural intelligence, and not appreciate its origin. And by that, I mean what it actually means. It comes from a Latin word that best translates as moral spirit, a spirit that guides you through life. Something received on one hand, but on another, that which is acted upon. So what is that moral spirit? Well, let me ask you again. What is the genius of Christianity? What is the genius of Catholicism? But love itself. Love itself. My friends, in baptism, we received the theological virtues, the moral virtues of faith, hope, and love. That's the genius of Christianity. That's the genius of Catholicism. Faith, hope, and above all else, love. So love Becomes the greatest genius of Catholicism. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, think about it. If love is the genius of Christianity and Catholicism, and we espouse to be genius, should we not espouse to be the best Christians and Catholics we can possibly be within the context of love? We need to take this great theological moral virtue and work out with it, if you will, that it might expand, and the world might see and come to appreciate the genius of Christianity and Catholicism. So to ask the question, what is the genius of Christianity and Catholicism, is to come to appreciate, A, what genius means, that it speaks to more of a moral spirit than that of something on a natural level, and that which is strictly tied to wit or intelligence, and to ultimately see that when we live out this genius of Christianity and Catholicism, we become attractive to the world. So love as God calls us to love. And what you'll find is you will be living out the genius that is Christianity and Catholicism. Um, remember, my friends, that when it is all said and done, the greatest of all virtues is love. Why? Because it constitutes the very life of heaven. And it is not to undermine faith and hope. Let me be clear on that. It is not to undermine faith and hope. Paul is not undermining faith and hope. Why does he say that the greatest of all virtues is love? Because in the end, my friends, when I say it constitutes the very life of heaven, it does so because it constitutes the very life of God. Are you going to need faith in heaven? No. Are you going to need hope in heaven? No. But you will be living in God's love in heaven. And so the greatest of all virtues is love. And again, that is the genius of Christianity and Catholicism. All that being said, let us now turn our attention to Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth, this first letter to the Corinthians. And again, I am going to go ahead and read chapter 5, Verses 6 to 13. Your boasting is not appropriate. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens all the dough? Clear out the old yeast so that you may become a fresh batch of dough, inasmuch as you are unleavened. For our paschal lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, not at all referring to the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, for you would then have to leave the world. But I now write to you not to associate with anyone named a brother. If he is immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a robber, not even to eat with such a person why should I be judging outsiders? Is it not your business to judge those within? God will judge those outside. Purge the evil person from your midst. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, Paul, as we noted at the tail end of last week, now moves into the religious reasons for purifying the community here in these verses. To say that their boasting is not appropriate seems a rather mild rebuke in many cases after the strong language of excommunication he was using in the previous verses. But their boasting is probably not about the man's sin per se. It is their overall arrogance and superior attitude that is willing to condone what was the immoral behavior, but incest, right? So they were condoning incest instead of confronting it. And so what does this have to do with the word yeast? Well, again, something I touched upon last week, yeast makes bread to rise. But it also corrupts. To eat leavened bread during the week-long feast of Passover would incur what? The severest of penalties, being cut off, if you will, from the people of Israel. The only bread permitted during Passover week was then and is now matzo, that stiff unleavened sheets that recall, of course, the haste with which the Israelites escaped from Egypt. In the feast, the Jews relive their liberation from slavery and the beginning of a new life, a life of freedom and a new identity as people consecrated to the Lord. A little yeast leavens all the dough. What is Paul after here? Indeed, it takes very little compared to the rest of the flour. Paul's point is that one tolerated scandal can spoil the whole community, both within and as seen by outsiders. The only way to assure that there is no corruption is to become, what did he say, a fresh batch of dough to start over. Now, of course, Lest they misinterpret that, Paul qualifies the metaphor by telling the community, you are unleavened. So the community does not need to start all over again, to be founded all over again. Essentially, their commitment to Christ and their baptismal consecration have made them a holy people, a people already set aside for God. What Paul is telling the Corinthian people is they must become what they are, or they must become what they were intended to be. Don't be something that you are not. In our treatment on Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth, we have already talked extensively about the virtue of humility. And that virtue that never wastes time protecting the false self, because the humble person is always content with who he or she is. It is not waste time. In protecting a reputation, because there's no reputation to protect. You are who you are. Paul is exhorting the Christian community to become what you are. And of course, in this context, eliminating the corrupting influence is the only way to maintain the integrity of their consecration. The reason they are unleavened is that the true Paschal Lamb has been sacrificed at Passover, the lambs were sacrificed, right? And Paul here represents the earliest New Testament claim that in his death and resurrection, Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. There is a clear causal connection between their being unleavened and the sacrifice of Jesus, as the connective four indicates. The sacrificing of the lambs in the temple only signaled the time for the Jews to clean out all leaven from their homes. The slaughtered lamb did not cleanse the leaven, but the sacrifice of Jesus the lamb cast out the leaven. And what does Paul tell us in his second epistle to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17? That in it we are made a new creation and following with this metaphor a new dough. (laughs) That is what the Christian community is, a new creation in Christ. On more than one occasion over the past 10 years, I have told you that the most important theme to all of Paul's epistles is that we have become a new creation in Christ. That is why these verses are so important for us. If you're to go to the Gospel of John, John sees the condemnation and death of Jesus as happening at the very hour the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. John chapter 19 verse 14. And does he not, John, identify Jesus on the cross as fulfilling one of the requirements of the Paschal Lamb that none of its bones should be broken? John chapter 19 verse 36. And what is this about, by the way? Why does John the Baptist recognize Jesus not as the Prince of Peace, not as the King of Kings, not as the Lord of Lords, but as the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God, because he has come to fulfill the great Passover of the Old Covenant. Why Lamb? Well, I want to briefly turn our attention to Genesis chapter 22, And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 14 and pay close attention. Pay close attention to these verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off then Abraham said to his young men stay here with the ass I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God All right, so Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, really turns our attention to the importance of the Lamb, right? And can you not hear the rich allegory in this story where an obedient son to a father carries wood up a mountain to become a Holocaust? Does that story not sound familiar? (laughs) <laughs> Does not Isaac prefigure and foreshadow Jesus Christ? What's interesting here, as Second Chronicles 3-1 highlights, the temple of Jerusalem was built where? But in the hillocks of Moriah. As tradition holds, where Abraham took Isaac is where God the Father took Jesus. And what's also, I believe, equally fascinating note that the ram got his horns stuck in the thickets. If you were to translate the Latin for crossbeams, you get horns. So, Christ's thorns got stuck into the crossbeams, just as the ram did 1800 years before that. So, Christ is not only the Paschal Lamb fulfilling the Old Covenant Passover, but he is also the lamb that will be provided on that hill. Remember, Abraham was, was in the city of Salem. Where do we get Jerusalem? Well, the Hebrew for God will provide is Jeru. So what did we read in verse 14? So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The will provide in the Hebrew, again, is Jeru. And so at that point in history, no longer is that the city of Salem, but the city of Jerusalem. No longer just the city of peace, but now the city of peace where God will provide the Lamb. And our God is a Father who always keeps his promises. Okay, so again, Jesus is the Paschal Lamb that has been sacrificed as Paul harkens back to, but also, my friends, I do think it's important we appreciate how he is fulfilling something else there. And so just a little quick study on Abraham, Isaac, and God the Father and Jesus. All right, revisiting chapter 5 of Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. It is possible that Paul is writing this letter shortly after the Christian Feast of Passover. he speaks later of staying at Ephesus until Pentecost seven weeks after Passover, which he speaks to in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 8. Now, since Paul mentions Christ as our Paschal Lamb, it seems reasonable to conclude that Christians were now celebrating the Jewish Passover as fulfilled in Christ. But the logic of the metaphor calls for something more. You see, my friends, Christians' Passover week never ends. And that is why there should never be a corrupting influence in their midst of all. Thus, they celebrate the feast constantly and should live accordingly with sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. A phrase that very much targets the Corinthians sweeping under the rug the corrupting influence of sin in their midst. The community is made to recognize that Paul's teaching here is not new. For he had written in an earlier letter in which he made it clear they were not to associate with immoral people. One could not then avoid dealing with them in the marketplace or in the street. So a very strong, strong rebuke coming from Paul and one that he's looking for them to rectify. Now here in verse 11, he goes on a run speaking to a number of sins, but if any member of the community calls himself a Christian, anyone named a brother, and is a moral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a robber, they should not even eat with such a person. The context indicates that Paul is still thinking in terms of flagrant public sins, public sins like that of incest that he has already condemned. Thus, it indicates one who is living such a lifestyle without remorse, one who needs to convert but has not. Again, here immoral means sexually immoral. Probably heading this list because Paul has in mind the incestuous man whose example is eating away at the community. As it relates to greed, we should note something here. In the ancient world, material goods were limited. Unlike our modern industrial society, where if we don't have enough of something, we make more. So one's grabbing usually meant what? But someone else going with less, which was forbidden in any Christian community 2,000 years ago, but also today. I think we've lost sight of this point because of the nature of supply and demand today. So greed Here, for Paul, is tagged as what? Reprehensible. And for Paul, clearly, this vice of greed is what is leading some of the Corinthians to sue other Christians before pagan courts. Now, Paul also speaks to slander, this uh, sin of immoral speech. My dear friends, with repeated severity, the books of Proverbs and Sirach condemn sins of speech, especially slanderous speech, which destroys the reputation of another. The Corinthians may not have gone that far, but surely the dissension Paul targets in the first four chapters involves what but sins of speech. Have we not already talked about gossip at great length? That idle conversation that breaks down the kingdom of God as opposed to build up the kingdom of God? Gossip is poisonous, I think it's very important that he lists slander as one of the great sins. Because again, as I've already said before, gossip is a sin that invades everyone's life. It's probably the one sin that we do most, that we think about the least. And we need to really look at how damaging it is. Again, that is why we spend so much time with it. So the Christians should be careful not even to eat with such a person, Paul says. Now, how does this square up with the example of Jesus who ate with publicans and sinners? I think that's a fair question, huh? Jesus went into the house of the tax collector. Why would Paul tell the Christians not to even eat with such a person? Well, one thing we should remember is that Jesus was reaching out to those not yet converted, not to already committed disciples who were flaunting their immorality. In biblical times, my friends, table fellowship was more than an occasional expression of hospitality. It was a sacred sign of social bonding, the creation of a brotherhood. In the famous Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23, what do we read? In verse 5, you set a table before me in front of my enemies. What does that mean? Well, it means that the host will defend his guest with his own life if necessary. Table fellowship was equivalent to community membership, and the vices Paul describes here are ones that exclude a person from the community, as found in the book of Deuteronomy. Of course, the fact that the Eucharist accompanied the common meal of the community, as Paul will get into in chapter 11, gives additional reason for uh, the structure of Paul's verses here. Okay, with our remaining minutes, let's just touch upon chapter 6 here. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 to 6. When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? If then you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are least esteemed by the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no man among you wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Mm. What is going on here? Well, Clearly, <laughs> Paul is distressed by reports of litigation in the church of Corinth. Instead of solving economic and property disputes like brothers, the Corinthians were hauling each other into the Roman courts. Paul rebukes them for this, judging that pagans should not arbitrate the internal affairs of God's covenant family. For Paul, the pagan judges are simply unbelievers that are entirely unfit to judge God's covenant people. He would rather see the church conduct herself like Israel, which regulated its internal disputes by appointing judges from the 12 tribes. How about verse 5 here? (laughs) No man among you wise. Here we have a sarcastic rebuke. For all their boasting about wisdom, the Corinthians proved themselves incompetent in the inability to resolve their own disputes. One of the earmarks of the one who is wise is what but to solve a dispute. (laughs) Paul says, is not anyone among you wise? Were you not boasting of wisdom? And now you turn to the pagan judges? This is silliness. (laughs) And it proves your lack of wisdom. Okay, that's a wrap. We will pick up tomorrow where we left off this evening. Again, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to email me at J H O L L J M J at Yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to my website, joholcraft.org, hit the contact link button there, and send your message on its way. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift. Of another evening an evening from which we were afforded the opportunity to reflect into the importance of a rebuke that although a rebuke might sting as all medicine it heals and through a rebuke we become a better version of who you are calling us to be so as we read about paul's rebuke to the corinthian people we are mindful of our own rebukes, how you challenge us and call us out to be who we were intended to be, and that is a son or daughter of God in all of its glory. We pray these things through the intercession of your mother. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. All glory be